Welcome to the City Church Cardiff podcast. We're an Elim Pentecostal church in the centre of Cardiff, dedicated to bringing hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you're inspired and impacted by this message. Welcome to our brand new series. It's called Financially Free. At a time in which personal debt is at an all-time high and amidst the turbulence of the current global economic situation and the cost of living increase here in the UK, many people are scared and even shackled financially. For I think all of us would want to live a life that is devoid of any kind of bondage. And a huge part of that is about getting our financial life in order. And in this series, Financially Free, we're going to be exploring what the Bible has to say about finances. We'll be teaching you about how you can take charge of your money rather than your money taking charge of you. And how you can apply the principles and the promises of God's word so that you can walk in financial freedom. We're going to be having a look at what the Bible has to say as to how we can cultivate habits that aid and enhance our financial well-being. Maybe you're in debt or maybe you're okay, you're comfortable, but maybe you have a desire to increase your wealth so that you can further God's kingdom purposes. Wherever you are, we are praying that you, the people of City Church, that through this teaching, as God's word is preached, that you would experience financial breakthrough, that any lack or limitation will be dealt with, that the power of God would meet you, and as you apply in obedience God's word to your life, you'll be able to go to a new level. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Now, some people think that churches shouldn't talk about money. But respectfully, can I say to you, we make no apologies for doing a sermon series on this. Why? Well, firstly, because the Bible has a lot to say about money. And as your pastors, we are charged with bringing you and teaching you the whole counsel of God. Maybe you're surprised to discover that there are twice as many verses in the New Testament on money than faith and prayer combined. In fact, 15% of Jesus' words deal with money. And by the way, that's more than what he said about heaven and hell. Secondly, I believe that it's only by teaching what the Bible has to say about money that we can reduce and minimize any illegitimate power that it has over us. Like it or not, money is a very significant factor in life. And sadly, there is so much unbiblical teaching out there, sometimes even promulgated by so-called Christian media outlets and people claiming to preach the Word of God. But really, this teaching ends up shackling the people of God and using the Bible to serve selfish ends. I believe that it's only by shining a light on what the Bible really has to say about it that we can liberate and empower and equip the people of God to be financially free. We need to be informed. You see, it's ultimately God's word and obedience to it that sets us free financially. And so by teaching on what 
the Bible has to say about money. That's how we put money in its place. A place where it serves as a tool for God's purposes and seeing his glory established and also, indeed, for our joy. Thirdly, God, he cares about your money. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to you, but he does. God cares about the entirety of our lives, every single aspect. He cares about you. He cares about your family. He cares about your health. He cares about your dreams. And yes, he cares about your finances. And this means that God is interested in what you do with your money. And that's why God has put principles in his word, such as faithful stewardship, such as tithing, such as generosity, such as giving to the poor, such as budgeting, such as living within our means. All of these things to advance his kingdom, yes, but also to lead to our own well-being and enjoyment too. So contrary to what some Christians may think, therefore, our relationship with money, and yes, we each have a relationship with money. Our relationship with money is actually a spiritual issue. And I really want us to understand this. In fact, our attitude to money is a very good window into the state of our heart. That you can go so far as to saying that your attitude towards money actually reveals a lot about your attitude towards God. That's right. If you want to see what is really important to a person, Look at what they spend their money on. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We'll look at that in more detail in a little while. Uh, When he said this, he was showing that our attitude towards possessions and money is very much an indication of our spiritual condition. In fact, what we give and the way in which we give is probably one of the clearest expressions of who our gods, either big G or small g, of who our gods really is. You know, I sometimes say it like this. Your bank statement is a theological document. It says a lot about who you worship or what you worship. So how we handle our money is very relevant to our faith. It's an indication of our heart priorities. And that's precisely why it matters to God. In fact, no matter how spiritual you think you are, if your financial life is not in order, if your finances are not in line with the will of God, then you actually have a spiritual problem. And that's why it's so important to cultivate biblical principles when it comes to money. And that's what this series, Financially Free, is all about. Now, generally speaking, when it comes to money, Christians are prone to making one of two mistakes. The first is what I call extreme poverty theology. This is the idea that God wants you poor, that the mark of spirituality is to struggle and to lack and to be poor. At the opposite end of this spectrum is what I sometimes call extreme prosperity theology. Now, this is the idea that God wants you rich. In fact, if God is happy with you, then you'll be wealthy. Or if you do things to please God, then he will bless you financially. The God wants you rich type idea, which leads to a giving to get type practice. Now, suffice it to say, we don't need extreme poverty 
theology, and we don't need extreme prosperity theology. What we need is proper theology. And proper theology sets us free from the poverty mentality, but it also safeguards us from the excesses of the prosperity gospel, and it calibrates us in pursuing God's plan of abundance for our lives. It reminds us that our resources are given to us on loan by God and for his purposes, and therefore we are not owners of anything but stewards of all that we have, of all that we've been given, of all that we acquire. Now, over the months and years, we've taught you to build a healthy, balanced theology of glory and suffering. And we've taught that Christians are not exempt from difficulty or trouble in this life, including financial trouble. But equally, and especially in this series, based on the word that the Lord has just put within our hearts to minister to you, we want to say to you, we don't need to be embarrassed by the fact that God's blessings can include material and financial blessings. Now, that doesn't mean that God wants to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. If anything, that is precisely the attitude that is discouraged in the scriptures. But it does mean that it is biblically legitimate to believe God for a life that is financially stable and secure, to believe God that you would have more than enough for your own needs, now note that I didn't say greeds, more than enough for your own needs so that you can also be a blessing to others. Blessed to be a blessing. How many of you want that? My hand is up. Blessed to be a blessing. It's biblically legitimate to believe that. In fact, God can and he does bless us in these ways. 2 Corinthians 9.8 talks about the fact that God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Can you see here there's the motive for good works? It's not just abundance or riches or wealth for their own sake, but that you can do good works to see the kingdom of God furthered and extended. Friends, I want to tell you, our God is a God who is great and good. He is large and in charge. He is a God of plenty, and he is a God of abundance, and he wants to bless us. He's not some mean old guy who delights in watching us squirm and struggle. No. He doesn't want to see us under these heavy loads. He wants to show himself to us as our perfect, loving, heavenly father. You know, the Bible says, we're going to see it in a little while, that this same God, he cares about us. He cares about what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear. And so when by faith, the people of God live in pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we can legitimately believe him for all the things that we need to be added unto us, that we don't have to worry that we can be financially free. And I believe this is the context of that wonderful promise in Matthew 6 and 33, which we're going to come to in a little while, about when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all the things that we need are added unto us. And so this is the heart behind this series, Financially Free. And so with the introduction to the series done, let's get to today's sermon. And my message is entitled, In God We Trust. Now note, the question mark. In God's 
we trust. Is that true for you? Or is the reality of your life something else? In money, I trust. In my own resources, I trust. In my own abilities, I trust. I guess every Christian would sign up to the statement, in God, I trust. And yet the thing that ultimately matters here and shows whether or not that's true in our lives is our actions. In God, we trust. Now, you may think when I came up with this sermon title, I was thinking about the American dollar bill, and that's right in one sense. But actually, the statement, in God we trust, is a statement that Catherine and I had to say to one another when we went through a very difficult financial time some years back. Now, to cut a very long story short, we had uh, accepted an invitation to take on an existing independent church congregation and bring it into the Elam movement. This project involved um, a building and, um, and also taking on a building project. It was a multi-million pound building project. It would have become one of the premier UK church facilities that I'm sure would have been a great blessing um, to that region. And so we, we moved house. We moved cities, we changed jobs and all of that kind of stuff. And when we arrived, the people who had invited us and Elam there, well, we discovered that things were not as we were told and not as we or Elam were promised. And, um, and so we discovered that, for instance, this big building project which we're excited about. It wasn't the reason why we came, but we're excited about it. It came with conditions, lots of invisible conditions. Conditions, in fact, that would have meant compromising our own integrity, our loyalty to Elam, and more importantly, what God had told us to do. And so despite knowing that this would lead us into an uncertain financial future if we were to refuse it, and also with that congregation that we took on that we wouldn't have a place to meet, Actually, Catherine and I said to each other, we can't do this. In God we trust. And so, yes, it meant living without a salary for some time and um, having to live by faith in many ways. And our church congregation, we ended up meeting in a school hall. Um, and there were some difficult times, but you know what? God was faithful throughout. He blessed the fact that we were able to trust him not trust in money, that we were able to, 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 to not sell our soul and to, and to stay right and to stay pure. And so we and the National Elam leaders, we said, okay, we're going to take this step of faith and we're going to totally walk away from this. And that's what we did, trusting God amidst uncertainty. But you know what? As we did that, the reason why we went to that city became even more apparent. We were able to do some good work there. We were able to pastor an amazing bunch of people, see them set free from many years of being shackled under some of that, straight, that, that stuff that was, that was circulating there and able to see them walk in the plans and purposes of God. And in fact, many of the blessings that we're enjoying today are as a result of some of the decisions that we made and ultimately the decision that we made to trust God in uncertain times. In God we trust. I want to jump into the teaching um, on this issue today by looking at the concept of worldview. A worldview 
is the window by which you see the world or the lens through which you look at the world and navigate life. In other words, therefore, everyone has a worldview. And broadly speaking, there are two ways of looking at the world or two worldviews, two ways of approaching life. You could talk about the theistic worldview where belief in God is right there at the center or the atheistic worldview where there is no belief in God and no sense of accountability to some divine being, the notion that God doesn't exist. Now, if I was to narrow this, these worldviews down even more, we could talk for the purposes of our talk today, we could talk about the Christian or the biblical worldview with Jesus at the center and then the secular or humanist worldview with humanity at the center. Now, it goes without saying that as believers in Christ, we should all have a Christian worldview. In other words, the Bible should be the lens through which we live out our lives, through which we navigate all of life. And yet the problem is that many Christians today, especially in nations such as ours, many who claim a relationship with Jesus, for all intents and purposes, they live out a secular or atheistic worldview in their day-to-day -day lives. Now, for sure, they may like or even share a post on Facebook that mentions Jesus. And they may even go to church on Sundays, although even that is becoming increasingly irregular. But the rest of their life, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, they live as if God doesn't exist. And so their faith in Christ makes no meaningful difference to what they do out there. You could call them Christian atheists. Now, it's a ridiculous term in many ways, but I think it captures the way that this group of people live. This is because there's no real difference between the way they live and the way an atheist lives, apart from maybe what happens on a Sunday. In other words, they don't apply Christianity, the truths of Scripture, to their day-to-day -day lives. They operate in the default mode, mode of the majority culture. They don't respond to the issues that they face biblically. And so God is not really involved in how they navigate their vocation or their family or indeed their finances. But do you know that your faith in Christ has something to say on every single aspect of your life? And your faith in Christ, your relationship to God, should be the filter which interprets absolutely everything else. Not just the apparently spiritual things that you do, but everything that you do in private and in public. Because being a Christian affects everything, not just the so-called religious things like church attendance or, or, or daily devotions behind closed doors closed doors. Being a Christian affects how you deal with arguments and how you solve problems. It affects how you parent and your attitude to your spouse. It affects how you shop and how you drive and, 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 and your, your manner in your driving. It affects how you complete your tax return. It affects how you interact with your boss or your colleagues or your teachers. The entirety of our lives in other words, the things that happen when we leave this building, the entirety of our lives should be lived unto the glory of God. 
Yes, we can and we do. Glorify God in here and it's an important time and a necessary time and a wonderful time. But we can also glorify God this time tomorrow. We can glorify God this time tomorrow at home, at work, at school, at university, wherever we are. We can glorify God when we interact with our clients. We can glorify God when we interact with fellow students and employers and employees, all of life to the glory of God. This is what it means to live out a Christian worldview. So, what are the implications of the Christian worldview when it comes to finances? Well, when it comes to money, we may say that similarly, there are broadly two economies arising out of these two alternative worldviews. There is the economy of the kingdom of God, and then there is the economy of the world. Kingdom economy and the world's economy couldn't be more different. In the world's economy, hope is found in our net worth, and success is measured by accumulation of assets and possessions and resources, either that or by our bank balance. Life is about getting more stuff, and that's where joy is to be found. Kingdom economy, on the other hand, maintains that it is better to give than to receive. In kingdom economy, success is not measured by accumulation. Success is measured by faithfulness as a steward of whatever we've been given by God. Kingdom economy is about coming to the realization that we're not entitled to anything when it comes to money, but we're entrusted with it. And at the crux of kingdom economy is subscribing to that truth that Jesus is Lord over every single aspect of our lives. And the recognition that Jesus is greater than anything that the world can offer. And that's why those who truly have that Christian worldview, that kingdom economy worldview, when it comes to finances, that's why we hold things loosely and why we gladly let go of stuff when Jesus says so and in obedience to him in order to possess him and his promises. And so these two ways, kingdom economy and the world's economy, these two ways of approaching finance are really important to keep in mind. And in fact, they are the exact same paradigm that Jesus uses when he teaches us in Matthew chapter 6, to which we're going to go right now. We're going to be reading from verses 19 to 21. Then we're going to skip to verse 24. And um, verses 22 to 23, which we're not going to read, they actually are relevant when it comes to generosity and understanding money. They just have to be, for the purposes of time today, a sermon for another time. So let's read Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's skip to verse 24, where Jesus goes on to say, And no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is getting us to think here. Whom do I serve? Whom do I trust? Gods or money? And he's saying that we cannot 
trust both. It's not both God and money. It's either one or the other. Now, let's backtrack a bit. It's worth saying and pointing out here. When you look at the Bible as a whole, it's clear that when it comes to money, whilst it shows that we must have safeguards in place, money in and of itself is not evil. Jesus is therefore not saying here that it's wrong to have money. Here it's really helpful to keep in mind Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. He says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Many people misquote this verse by saying money is the root of all evil. But that's not what it says. Money is not evil. Money is amoral. In other words, it's neutral. It can be used for good or for bad. But it's the love of money, putting our trust and our hope in money, looking to money as the source of our satisfaction. That is what is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong for money to have you. I'll say that again. It's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong for money to have you, to have your heart. Money is a great servant but a cruel and a poor master. And going back to Matthew chapter 6, when in verse 24, Jesus is saying, you cannot serve both God and money. The Greek word there is actually the word mammonas, which means money. And mammonas is a proper noun. It's a name, just like Dominic is a name, or Catherine is a name, or David, or Sean is a name. It's a name. Why is that important? Well, though Mamonas can be translated as money or possessions or riches, it was actually the name of a Syrian god, a god of riches, a god small g, a false god in other words. And so when the Bible talks about mammon, as it does here, we can also say that it's talking about a demonic spirit, a demonic spirit of greed and selfishness that tries to get us to put our trust and our security in it rather than in God. And so this reminds us that though money is amoral, a, not im, but amoral, though money in and of itself is not evil, there is a power and there is a spirit that can attach itself to money. This is why we need to be careful. Because this spirit seeks to control and even dominate our beliefs and our behaviors, and it keeps us in bondage financially. And this is the spirit that we want to see broken off each and every one of us as we teach the truth from God's word in this series. There's a spirit that can attach itself to money, a demonic spirit. But can I just tell you something exciting too? I have to resist it because it really is a, a sermon for another time. But I get excited about this. God's spirit can also attach to our money. And that's precisely what happens when we bring the tithe. The first tenth of our income and our financial increase, that's what happens when we prioritize him in this way. But when we bring our first fruits, the tithe, when we bring it in the right way with the right heart, so it's not some kind of mechanistic thing, some, some kind of magical thing. No, it comes out of relationship with God. When we bring the tithe to the Lord, everything else is blessed. And mammon's grip 
is broken. In fact, there's no greater expression, I believe, of mammon's lack of domination in your life than when you willingly and cheerfully give of your first and of your best to God. You're saying, you are number one, and in you I trust. Let's get back to Matthew chapter 6 here. Jesus, he clearly viewed mammon as a competitor towards our pursuit of God's and his kingdom purposes. A competitor that fights for supremacy in our lives and to take the place of God. You see, just like God, mammon promises security and freedom and peace and joy. Though unlike God, it can never deliver on these things in an ultimate sense. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6 and 24, that if you're living for money, and he's talking in the sense of, of mammon here, you cannot live for God. He's not simply saying it's going to be hard to live for God. He's saying it is impossible. You're not going to be able to do it. And when you think about it, that's the case. It's impossible to take orders from two masters at the same time when those masters are diametrically opposed to one another. It's impossible to do that without at least giving preference to the one. You can't have two number ones in your life. Only one master will win out. And so this means that attachment to mammon inevitably leads to detachment from God because you cannot serve both God and money. Now I think as Christians, we would all say that God is our master and that we trust him. And yet the reality is that there are so many Christians, sadly, so many people out there in the world economy, but Christians who've been, who, who, who for all intents and purposes live out of that secular worldview too. Christians who are looking for ultimate fulfillments in the things of this world. Is that me? Surely not me. You know, when we take on board that idea, just having a little bit more, then that will make me happy. When we go on the quest, the search for that elusive enough, that will make my life secure. Subtle ways we can get on that pathway. And then there are some who've hook, line, and sinker. They've swallowed that poisonous pill of the extreme prosperity gospel. And they approach God as if he simply exists to help them acquire more money and stuff. But mammon is a counterfeit God. It's an, it's an idol. An idol is anything that you look to for security and significance and self-worth. Anything that you look to as the source of happiness other than God's. And herein lies the danger of money. Because money can help us acquire stuff, mammon often lulls us into thinking that it can deliver security and significance and self-worth. But it can't. And if we've ever needed an example of that, well, it's the global financial meltdowns that we've been seeing time after time across the globe in recent years. A sobering reminder that we shouldn't put our trust in money, that we can't put our faith in money. And this is why Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 6 not to store treasures on earth because I mean, the global financial meltdowns, that when Jesus spoke to his audience, he was talking about 
um, moth and rust and vermin destroying and thieves breaking in and stealing. And it, this is the equivalent that we are seeing. But even if our wealth is not destroyed, Jesus is making the point here too that we cannot take earthly treasures with us when we die. Only treasures for heaven. Only the treasures stored in heaven. By which Jesus means the good works that we do. Following being saved by him. The good works that we do as part of our mission on this earth. The things that we do as out of a life lived in obedience to him. Those are the things that store up treasures in heaven. Those are the things that endure. Now, if you want to know more about this, you may want to go back to a message I preach in our series called The End of the World as We Know It. When I was talking about the judgment seat of Christ, and particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, where it talks about the testing of our works by fire. Our works can endure, and we can store up treasure in heaven when we truly obey God and do what he says. The missionary Jim Elliot, he once said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, don't put your hope in money. Put your hope in that which lasts forever. Remember Jesus said, we read it again in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 6, that your heart follows your money where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now we often tend to think of it the other way around, that our money follows our heart. But Jesus says here that your heart will follow your treasure. When we put God First in our finances, our heart is correctly focused. And we start to care about the things that God cares about. But when we put other things first, then these things occupy our heart and they take God's place. And the problem is that many Christians have invested so much down here and hardly anything down there because we've been up there because we've been living through that secular worldview. That lens, investing down here instead of up there, treasures on earth instead of treasures in heaven. And this has meant that our money has kept us tethered to the things of this earth rather than focused on God's eternal kingdom purposes. And this is why so many of the things of this earth are right front and center and occupying us and distracting us from the mission and the call of God upon our lives. If we want to have a biblical worldview on money, if we want to be financially free, we must look to God. We must acknowledge that God owns everything. He owns the entire universe and he entrusts us as his managers, his stewards with resources, with possessions and with money. Psalm 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And until we recognize this, our money and everything that it represents, everything that it buys, it holds us hostage and potentially under the grip of this spirit of mammon. Again, this is why the principle of tithing and giving is so important because when we present the tithe, we are acknowledging that God is first. We were saying, you have the priority in my life. We're saying through that, and it's a powerful statement to God and to yourself that you're trusting in him and not in money. This is why our giving 
our consistency in giving, our faithfulness in giving, our cheerfulness in giving shows so much about our spirituality and who we are trusting. I believe that it's by honoring God in our finances, by doing what he says, this is the key to financial freedom, to being financially free and making good financial choices. As Christians, we must surrender control of our money, of our possessions, of our assets, of our abilities, of our time. We must surrender these to God for his use and for his glory. This is what I think Paul is getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verses 17 to 19. Let's read it. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What a beautiful verse there about God's plan, even for our money. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share in this way. Sounds a lot like Jesus here in Matthew 6. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, when people read scriptures such as this, think, ah, it doesn't apply for me. It says, command those who are rich, and I'm not rich. Just, my neighbor is rich. That person I'm looking at on the TV, she's rich, but I'm not rich. But can I say respectfully to you, rather than comparing ourselves to that rich person in this nation, that rich person maybe down the road, how about comparing ourselves with the rest of the world? Because I read a quote that for people like us in nations such as ours, if we have food in our fridge, clothes on our back and a roof over our head, then we're in a better state than at least 75% of the world. Now listen, I fully appreciate there are some people here who are genuinely struggling financially. In this series, we want to help you practically and through God's word and minister to you in every way we can. I know that for you, you see, for everyone, the cost of living increase, I'm sure, is very inconvenient and not welcome news. But for you, it's crippling. And I get it that there are people in that situation. But there are so many of us, we're not in that crippling situation with the cost of living increase, just in that inconvenient and unhelpful situation where we have to maybe cut back on some luxuries. But there are some who this is a matter of heating your house or, 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 or not, of eating or not. But I would want to suggest to many of us here that the vast majority maybe even that Jesus' warnings in scriptures such as this apply to us much more than we think. So let's not rule ourselves out here. In Matthew chapter 19, I believe it is, Jesus, he was challenging a rich young man to choose his master. And again, we sometimes say, oh, that's not me um, here. This doesn't uh, apply to me uh, when Jesus was talking about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And yet maybe it does because... People who have resources, maybe that roof over their head, maybe food on their table. Actually, rich people are at a spiritual disadvantage because we're more susceptible to trusting money or ourselves than we are trusting God. I've been and walked the streets of some of the poorest places in the world. 
and heartbreaking to see, to see the inequality, to see the vast difference, and yet also to see, my goodness, these people, they are free from the love of money because there is a spiritual disadvantage sometimes to riches. I've seen it time and time again. Some of the wealthiest people in this world are the most shackled. Again, that doesn't mean that money is wrong or money is, is bad. Remember, it's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong for money to have you. And for those who have resources, therein lies the danger. It can easily get hold of us through the spirit of mammon. And this rich young man, you may know the story, he chose money over and above God. And because he trusted in his wealth, that made him its slave. And we might think, I'd never reject Jesus like that. And yet in smaller ways, many make similar choices every day, failing to realize just how crippling that is to us spiritually. You know, when I fail to give generously out of what God has entrusted to me so that I can have more for myself, I'm actually, whether I know it or not, it's probably inadvertent, but I'm serving mammon. When I buy something I don't need, with money that I can't afford, I'm serving mammon. When I don't give to God or only give to God out of the leftovers, after I've done everything else, I'm actually prioritizing mammon, whether I know it or not. When I'm failing to honor biblical principles, such as good stewardship, tithing, generosity, giving to the poor. When I say I don't have enough to give or want to keep it for myself, it's a sure sign that I'm not trusting God. Here's the thing I've come to realize. When Christ truly enters into a life, it changes everything, including our relationship with money. And that's exactly what happened to Zacchaeus. You can read about it in Luke 19. Let me just focus on what Zacchaeus said in verse 8. After he had this amazing encounter with Jesus, he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus realized that whilst he was financially rich, he was spiritually bankrupt. But now that he put his trust in Jesus, Jesus poured out spiritual riches into his life. And Jesus replaced money, replaced mammon as Zacchaeus' savior. And so money now was just a tool, a tool which he wanted to use to be a blessing to people. He used to be all about the money, but now his security, his significance, his self-worth, his identity was rooted in Christ. And so he ultimately, he broke the spiritual stranglehold of mammon by giving away generously and sacrificially. And this is why the Bible's teaching on giving is such an antidote to the poison that mammon seeks to just um, spew over us and... Um, how we approach the whole topic of money. As I come to a close, let me summarize. Our use of money shows us a lot about what we treasure and whom we trust. Show me what you do with your money, and I'll show you what's important to you. I'll show you who or what you are trusting. We live in a physical world of which we are all too aware, but when you look at the Bible, it also talks about the existence of another realm a spiritual realm, an invisible, unseen realm, an eternal realm, 
this unseen spiritual reality. And many believers, because we live out of this secular, atheistic worldview, ironically, because we live that way, we make the mistake of living as if this physical world is all that there is. And Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So thinking biblically, having a Christian worldview, means staying aware of the unseen, of the spiritual, of the, in, of, of, of the invisible part of life. And letting that guide how we live out the rest of our lives. Letting that interpret all of the rest of the physical stuff. It's all too easy to say that we believe in God, and yet we can live as if he doesn't exist. As Christians, we're called to let the truth of God's word filter into every single sphere of our lives, including how we handle our money. And that's why we want to teach on it. In God we trust. It's easy to say it. But ultimately, it's about living it. Especially, I believe, this is why Jesus uses it as the example, especially in the realm of finances. And I believe that that is the key to financial freedom and even for many spiritual freedom too. In fact, when we can walk in this way, prioritizing God, even if it means walking away from millions of pounds or if it just means making small daily decisions, whatever it is, I believe when we walk in this way, that the promise in Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, that that can become a living reality in our lives. Let's read it. Remember, Jesus says, all that he said about seeking first his kingdom, storing up treasures in heaven, and then he says, so do not worry. So many people are worried today about this cost of living increase, about what's going to happen. But he says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Those with that other worldview, they run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Who or what do you ultimately trust? Who are you serving? You can only have one Lord. And Jesus is inviting us to make a choice, God or mammon. Who are we going to trust in? You know, these are uncertain and difficult times and worrying times. And yet, believers can have the wonderful assurance that our unshakable, all-powerful, supernatural God is able to do supernatural things in our lives. He is worthy of our trust because he is in absolute control. And when we obey him, and when we do what he says, he can do supernatural things in every aspect of our lives, including our finances. Want to be financially free? Put your trust in the Lord. Do what he says. Take a step of obedience today and see what your faithful God can do and will do. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. To find out more, visit our website at citychurchcardiff.com or find us on social media. 